A number of years ago, Pope Francis was visiting Milan, and as part of a public appearance, a young girl was invited to address him. In front of the millions of people who were in attendance, she told the Pope that she had no home. She slept outside on a cardboard mat and scavenged for food in the garbage. And then she asked him this, why does God allow children to suffer? This was an unscripted moment, something that nobody had planned for. But the question was now there, and the Pope needed to answer. Here's what he said. He embraced the girl, and he told the crowd to be very quiet. Pay close attention, he said. She has just asked the one question with no answer. And when the crowd had quieted down, he said this to the girl. We can't answer you now. Only when we are able to weep about the things that you have lived will we understand anything and be able to answer you. So part of me thinks I should just sit down right now and let that be today's sermon. Because that brief interaction says so much about our very human desire for explanations in the face of life's fragility and of what our faith offers instead. Terrible and unexpected things happen. An earthquake strikes the coast of Japan, wounding hundreds of people. Too many seasons with too little rain lead to crop shortages and widespread hunger in Somalia. A theater housing hundreds of people seeking shelter in Ukraine is struck by the invading army. Terrible and unexpected things happen. And something in us wants to know what God is up to in the midst of it all. What's going on? How can this sort of thing happen in a world created in love? Why does God allow this to happen? People of faith have been asking those questions forever, seeking some explanation for why horrible things happen to innocent, unsuspecting people. There is no shortage of explanations out there, as we all know. But I personally don't think our faith centered on a God who shares human life in all its hurt and hope. I don't think our faith offers a better answer than the one given by the Pope to that young girl. The best answer we can give to the question of why innocent peoples are allowed to suffer is our tears. Any explanation for why some die while others live will ultimately fall short or worse, cause greater suffering and harm. Only when we have wept about the sufferings another has endured will we understand anything. Jesus faces a similar sort of question in our gospel reading this morning. A terrible and unexpected thing had recently happened in his part of the world. Apparently a group of Galileans, people from the same region as Jesus and his disciples, were killed by Pontius Pilate while performing a religious ritual. We don't know anything more about the circumstances. This short passage from Luke is the only source that we have for this event. But it's clear that Jesus and his fellow Galileans there were well aware of the suffering recently inflicted on their neighbors by the Roman-appointed governor. So someone brings up this gruesome episode to Jesus, perhaps insinuating that there must be an explanation for why these particular people were allowed to suffer. Maybe they weren't really so innocent, 
someone suggests. Maybe God was just giving them what they really deserved. And Jesus' response is not unlike the Pope's. Okay, it's a little less gentle and pastoral. I think if he were speaking to a child, he might have had a somewhat different tone. But like Pope Francis, he resists any neat explanation for the suffering around him. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. To underscore that point, he reminds the crowd of another terrible and unexpected event, the collapse of a tower on a bunch of bystanders. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Jesus will not answer the problem of evil here. Why do some die in a disaster like this while others are allowed to keep on living? It's a question with no answer. All Jesus will say is that there is no divine punishment to be found behind horrible events of this sort. So don't try to explain. You'll only make it worse. That's all Jesus will say about it. Not absolutely all. He also says this, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. He says that twice, in fact, just to be sure we get the message. Hmm, you might be saying to yourself, that sounds a little bit puzzling. I mean, Jesus just got finished saying that catastrophic events are not, in fact, punishment for sin. And now he's saying if you don't repent, you'll perish? If you don't shape up, a meteor will soon be headed your way? Really? Thankfully, there is another way to hear Jesus' words here. New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson says we should hear, you will all perish just as they did, as meaning suddenly and unprepared. That is, death will come for each of us at some point. We can't change that. What we can change is how we live right now. We can live with the awareness of life's preciousness and fragility. We can stop drifting aimlessly and live into the gift and the demand and the calling of the present moment. We can change how we act today. Jesus has a word for that, and the word is repent. I know that's a word with a lot of baggage. For lots of us, it always sounds like some version of feel really bad about all you've done wrong, beat yourself up and try to do better. For lots of us, it just feels like a shame-inducing threat. But that's really not what repentance is about at all. The word didn't have all that baggage in Jesus' time. It was much simpler than all that. The word Jesus uses here really means change your mind. Get your head around a new way of looking at things. Look at the world around you and at your life differently. Let that sink in and do something about it. The call to repent, you probably know, comes up again and again in Jesus' teaching and preaching. And when you remember that repentance is primarily about adopting a new perspective, seeing things differently, you can understand why it's there so much. Jesus was offering a way of looking at the world and human life that was profoundly different from the culture around him. In a world of rigid hierarchies, he spoke about a God who makes no distinctions. In a world that kept score and remembered every misstep, he spoke about a God who offered mercy 
to all. In a world that prized possessions and status, he called the poor, the meek, and the peacemakers blessed. In a world where everything had a price tag, he spoke of the grace of God without money or price. Jesus' ways are not our ways, and so it's a big task to get your mind around the kingdom of God that he spoke about and embodied. Living into that reality is the work of a lifetime. We all have plenty of repenting to do. So Jesus calls the crowd to repent, to stop looking for explanations behind the tragic events around them and look at their lives differently instead. And to help with that task, he tells this short story. In a man's garden, there's a fig tree, Jesus says. And for years, that tree has borne no fruit. Each year he looks, and each year it's the same story. Branches and leaves, but no figs. He's ready to give up on it, to cut it down and make room for something else, something that would actually grow and blossom like it's meant to. But the gardener intervenes. Give it one more year, he says. Give me a little more time with it. Let me tend to it carefully. Give it some attention and nourishment and care and see what happens. Maybe next year will be different. If not, very well. Cut it down. It's easy to focus on that cutting part of the story, right? To hear nothing here but a threat, the old familiar shape up or else. There is a bite to this story for sure. Jesus clearly wants us to hear that the stakes are high that the way that we see, the way we see and live in the world really matters that there is some urgency behind behind the choices that we make today but don't miss the grace that's here as well because the tree has another year there's still time to inhabit the world differently there's still time to bear fruit for others there is still time to turn and live Combine this parable with that call to repent that came just before it, which, by the way, is in the plural. It's you all repent, you all change. And there is actually a profoundly hopeful message for the community. Life is unpredictable. There's no telling when any of our time will come. But you have today. You have today to live. So live for what is important. It's a message for the crowd gathered around Jesus that day 2,000 years ago, and it is a message for us today amidst all the reminders we have of how precious and fragile life is. We have today to build a community that is welcoming and hospitable for all. We have today to open our hearts and our lives to refugees. We have today to treat others with compassion to laugh with those who are laughing and weep with those who are weeping. We have today to advocate for a more just and loving society. We have today to let go of the grudges that we've been carrying. We have today to tell those who are precious to us that we love them. We have today to cherish and honor the creation. We have today to share bread and wine around the table. We have today to sing with joy in the shelter of God's wing. Life is always unpredictable and frequently unexplainable. Nothing is going to change that.
but we have today to change our minds, to change our lives, to bear fruit for others. We have the gift of this moment to be alive in the world and alive in God's presence. And we have a gardener at work as well. Don't miss that. The gardener in Jesus's parable is patiently caring for the tree, tending it, nourishing it, coaxing it toward life. There is grace to be found, friends, in this day, here and now. Thanks be to God. Amen.